starting a series this weekend uh, called Reset, Why Discipleship Isn't About Trying Harder, and it's a a series that I'm very passionate about and very uh, kind of excited to get to. I wrote a book called Reset, of the same name, and uh, in this book, what I've done is really kind of chronicle what God has um, taught me in the last a few years of my life and how he has uh, untangled a lot of my uh, preconceived ideas about him, a lot of what I was taught about him growing up in the church and uh, how God kind of opened up for me a, um, <clears throat> a, a fresh way, I think a correct way to respond to him and have the relationship with him that he actually uh, wants me to have. And so I'm really excited to take Uh, all of us through that same journey. I think it's going to be incredibly helpful for you and uh, clarifying for you, and I think even life-changing. So I'm excited about that. Uh, The reason why this was such a journey for me is because I I grew up in the church, and some of us did, and a lot of us didn't, and that's all okay, but I did. I grew up in the church, and I am one of those people that grew up, I was never opposed to God really. I never really doubted that there was a God. I wasn't anti-God, at least cognitively I wasn't. And I was a person who um, had affection for this thing called God and had an openness to it, but was never really taught how to respond to God. So I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that God was ticked off about that. I knew that I was supposed to get my life kind of together. Um, I knew that uh, there was an expectation from the people around me that I should behave a certain way. And I was kind of open to doing all those things. But when I went to respond to God, because of how I, God was kind of defined for me, I would often respond to him incorrectly. So God was mostly defined for me as this inspecting God. God was looking for something wrong with me and expected me to measure up to him, and I had better get my act together, get certain things out of my life, put other things into my life, and that would cause me to get, you know, at least a B minus in my relationship with God, and that would kind of keep you eligible (laughs) to play for the next week, and that's kind of the way that it worked. And so I did that. Uh, when I would feel something or be motivated to respond to God, what I would do then is double down on that performance. Legalism is what we call it. So I remember uh, as a kid one time coming back from a camp and very, being very motivated to be close to God. And so what I did in an effort to do that was I got rid of all my secular music, right? So I got rid of Garth Brooks, all the good stuff. I just threw it away. And got rid of my cassettes. And that's how I knew to respond to God. And I'd stop watching, you know, the Dukes of Hazard because Daisy's shorts were too short and start watching the Andy Griffith show on reruns. And, and that's what I knew to do. I knew to change behavior. And I remember being in church one time, I was probably 15 or 16 years old, and our, our pastor yelled a lot. And uh, he'd, beat, he'd hit the pulpit, he'd pound the pulpit can't pound the music stand very well, it flips it over, but he would, he would pound the pulpit. And I remember him doing that one time, and he pounded the pulpit, and he said, live for Jesus, live for Jesus, live for Jesus, you've got to love Jesus. And I, re- I remember thinking, I remember sitting there thinking, I thought, Pastor, if I knew what you were talking about, I would be really open to it. 
I, I wasn't this hard-hearted guy. I, just, I, I literally didn't know what he meant by it. What's it mean to live for Jesus? I got rid of Garth Brooks. What's next, you know? And what's it mean to love Jesus? I thought I was doing that when I got rid of Garth Brooks. See? So what, what, what do you mean by it? And over the years, as uh, I learned the Bible more and got in the ministry and things like that, I found myself uh, questioning certain things. I found myself repeating certain things. And I found myself with kind of the inability to answer my own questions. So God wants you to love him, love him. Well, what does that even mean? Well, I guess pray more, read the Bible more, go to church more, do more things. And is that what God wants? And is that what God intended? And if not, then what? And that's the journey of this book, and it's the journey I want to take us on. It's discovering the real heart of God and understanding what that means. There is a work aspect. There is a, certainly an engagement aspect to our faith. And then there's a lot of reception, uh, what God does in us and allowing that to happen and kind of engaging him on those levels. So we want to have this conversation, and I'm really excited to have it. I'm really excited to kind of walk us through this. And I think, uh, like I said, for many of us, is, is I've had people read this book and had this conversation with them. Uh, it's been life-changing for them. In a lot of ways, it's been life-changing for me. And uh, I want to have us do that. I, I've uh, often said that uh, our, our messages here on Sundays are just, and Saturdays are just overflows of my devotional life. So whatever God's teaching me is what you get stuck with, kind of. And uh, this, is, this is where God's had me the last few years. So let's, let's dump in, jump into this. Uh, the name of the book is Reset, Why Discipleship Isn't About Trying Harder. And before we get too deep into this, let's talk about some terms here, because I want to talk about discipleship. Discipleship is a very misunderstood word and term and concept, and it's actually central to everything that we're going to be talking about Uh, here for the next few weeks. Discipleship, if you grew up in church like I did, discipleship to you probably means Bible study. And that's probably the way that you would interpret that. Somebody in a one-on-one or one-on-two or one-on-three situation had a small booklet and they had you go through it. And uh, you would go home and you would read a verse and you'd fill in some blanks and you'd come back and memorize a verse And then you would meet with your discipler and you would spit all that information back out to them. Nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, a lot of things very valuable with it, but just not the whole sense of what discipleship is. For many of us, discipleship in practical terms means the adoption of the Christian subculture. So as you were growing up, if you grew up in the church, the more you participated in the church, the more you were told you're doing what God wants you to do. So I'm going to show up more, I'm going to go to more services, I'm going to participate in more side activities, I'm going to go to mass more, confession more, learn my rosary faster than other people do, all that kind of stuff. And you were praised for that, right? You're doing good, that's what God wants you to do. And so that's discipleship. It means the adoption. You quit listening to good music and started listening to Christian music. And, and you stopped watching entertaining television and started watching Christian television. And you, you would swap out all this stuff and do the Christian version of whatever it was out there. And that was discipleship. For many of us here who didn't grow up in the church, discipleship is just a church word. 
right? We don't even know what it means. It's like the, Jesus had disciples. I guess they went on a ship, discipleship. I don't know what it is, right? And so that's fine. It's just kind of a term that gets thrown around the church a lot. So what is discipleship and why isn't that about trying harder? Let's just define it real quick. Defining discipleship is important because it, it's often confused with Christianity, so when we say I'm a disciple of Jesus, what we mean is I'm adopting the North American version of, of Christianity. Christianity is presented differently in each culture, which is actually fine, but that's what we mean. I'm, I'm being a Christian as defined by my North American culture. So I quit doing these things. I started doing these things. I started acting in these ways. I'm a disciple. Actually, I'm not. I'm just embracing Christianity. What is discipleship? Discipleship, very simply, is this. Compare it and contrast it. Christianity is a belief system that is wrapped in a subculture. That's what Christianity is. There's a core doctrine, a core theology, and then there's a presentation in a given culture. Discipleship is very different. Discipleship is simply Jesus' invitation to follow him. So Jesus says, come be my disciple, he doesn't mean go to church or even adopt these practices, this theology, this doctrine. What he's saying is connect with my heart. Know me, interact with me, come and follow me. Discipleship is me being a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Disciple making is another thing. We're going to talk about that for a couple of weeks later on. Disciple making is when I invite somebody else to come with me and we follow Jesus. So the Bible teaches that disciples of Jesus should make disciples, right? So there's disciple making, then there's discipleship. And discipleship is the personal call from Jesus to you and to me to come and follow him, to be connected with his heart. Now, that's a big deal because that's what the Bible is talking about most of the time. The Bible is not usually talking about Christianity. It's talking about discipleship. In fact, the term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament, and each of those are vaguely defined. It's not a negative idea. It's just kind of out there. The word disciple is used 294 times in the New Testament, and it's a very narrowly defined idea. It is follow Jesus, connect to his heart, learn from him, and become the person or like him in the ways that he wants you to become like him. So that's, that's a big difference. Christianity is a belief system wrapped in a subculture. Discipleship's a personal invitation. So when Jesus calls followers, he's not calling us to Christianity. He's calling us to discipleship. He, he describes disciples in terms that are all deeply relational. So he uses terms like friend, brother, sister, a joint heir, a worshiper, right? Those are the things he's talking about. It's the, it's the invitation for us to be united to his heart with a passion to become like him and a desire to be with him. It's a connection, it's a oneness, it's a locking onto, it's discipleship. And we confuse those things and that confusion deeply affects our relationship with God. If I define discipleship as Christianity, I'm going to interact with God wrong. If I define discipleship as connecting and locking into the heart of God, it's going to put me on 
the right path. So that's a big deal. And we say here at Grace, it's important that we hear God or that we understand God correctly. So for instance, if, if when we hear Jesus say, come follow me, if we hear that in terms of Christianity, if we hear God as this inspecting God who's saying to, in our minds, come follow me, get your act together, then I'm going to follow God incorrectly. What I'm going to do is I'm going to become a legalist. That's what I did growing up. So when I heard come follow me, what I heard was I better get a Christianized version of everything that's happening in my life. I better go to church more. I better try harder. I better do good works. I better get rid of Garth Brook and insert the Gaither vocal band, right? I better do those things because that's what Jesus wants from me. I didn't understand that he was calling me to his heart. I thought he was calling me to a behavioral system. If I, when Jesus says, come follow me, if I hear him as a disappointed God, a God that's kind of out there, is frustrated with me, then I will follow him by offering him my dutiful obligation. Come follow me. I'm a Christian. I guess that it's Easter. I guess I got to do Christian stuff. It's Christmas. I better get to church because that's what the Christians do, right? I better, I got I'm stuck doing this because I'm a Christian. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Hindu. I'm a Christian. And this is the Christian stuff that you have to do. That disappointed God. God's going to be frustrated if I don't. When I hear Jesus say, come follow me, if I hear that in terms of a distant God, a God that's kind of out there somewhere, then I'll respond to him with religiosity, right? So I'm a God that has to be appeased. I'm out here somewhere. And I will be religious then in order to appease that God. It's been a really rough week, a lot of drinking, a lot of sleeping around, better get to church Sunday morning, right? I'm a Christian. Uh, I got a test in school. Better say this prayer that I memorized because I'm a Christian and I need a, I need a C plus to stay eligible, right? Uh, it's time to eat. Better pray before we eat or you'll gag on your food and die. That's what the Bible says, Right? We're going to take a trip in the car. We better pray for traveling mercies. Whatever they are, we better pray for them, okay? And it's a religiosity. I I weave Jesus. I wear a cross. I have a lucky Jesus bobblehead on my dashboard. And I do religious things because that's what I hear. And I think that that's what it means to follow Jesus, Now, guys, what happens in all of that when we follow Jesus in that way is we miss what Jesus really wants and create him into being something other than he is. So let me show you what I mean. So I got a a Jesus doll here. This is Captain America and Jesus. Because Jesus, a lot of us would think of Jesus this way. Jesus is a North American, right? Because we're Christians. We, We grew up. So it's Captain America, Jesus. And that's what Jesus is, because Jesus was born 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, and he would look like this, with blue eyes and pale skin, Jesus. And so we're going to interpret Christianity through cultural lenses, which is fine. It's very different than the heart of Jesus. So for instance, as Americans, as North Americans, we just assume Jesus is on our side all the time, right? Because we were taught that. We were taught that you go to church and Jesus is kind of for our country and 
He's on our team all the time. And so we're just going to assume that we're in the right with Jesus. Now, as a thinking person, if I have to become patriotic to be a Christian, I'm going to struggle with that a little bit. Because I'm not anti-American, but I kind of know that if you live in a country that has aborted 100 million babies, maybe God isn't thrilled about that. I kind of know that that math doesn't work quite right. So all of a sudden, I'm going I'm to push back from the heart of God a little bit. Because if it's Captain America Jesus, then that's not going to work for me. Then we'll bring that into the Christian subculture. So there's lots of things that we're going to add on. I'm a Christian, so that means that I celebrate Christmas. I don't celebrate Hanukkah or whatever else there is, Ramadan. I celebrate Christmas. So I'm going to take my Captain America Jesus, and I'm going to add my religious practices to it, right? Because I got to keep grandma happy. So I'm going to go to church at Christmas. I'm going to lock Christmas on the Captain America Jesus here. And there I am. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And then I've been adopted into a subculture, so there's certain things that I lock into the subculture, like Christian candy. This candy, the bag literally says, winning the world to Christ, one piece of candy at a time. It's fantastic. That, that's right out of the Old Testament. And so I'm going I'm to lock on Christian stuff, right? Because I'm a Christian. We have Christian candy. So I'm going to do that kind of, I'm not going to eat secular candy. I'm going to eat Christian candy, right? I'm going to add that onto my life. And then I'm going to take whatever the current cultural presentation of Jesus is. So these guys, the Duck Dynasty guys, they seem like they're on our team right now. They say Jesus stuff, and Jesus had a beard, so there you go. And so I'm going to lock that on there, and I'm going to mix it with kind of my personal agenda because Jesus is also pro-gun. That's in the Bible. And so I'm going to lock that on, and he wants lower taxes too. Um, he had a lot to say about lower taxes. So I'm going, to, I'm going to lock that onto the Bible, and I'm just going to add these things into my Jesus life say the Pledge of Allegiance, things like that. And there it is. And this is our construct of Jesus. Christmas, Easter, the 4th of July. We do church right. We sing the right songs. We have all the right thoughts. And we have wrapped it up in a Christian subculture. And then we'll look at a group of people who don't believe this or even understand it and say, come follow Jesus. And they'll look and say, why would I do that? Why would I do that? The, the church I grew up in, you had, you had uh, Captain America, Jesus, and then you, you also weren't allowed to have long hair, or, and the women couldn't wear pants, they had to wear dresses or skirts, and you couldn't have facial hair or piercings or tattoos, and so you had to get all that together and then worship Captain America, Jesus, and we would sing war songs in churches' worship songs. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the king. See? And is this what God wants? So we look and say, man, somewhere in there, we're not worshiping Muhammad or Buddha, somewhere in there is this person named Jesus 
but I, he's hard to get to. It's all misconstructed. And somehow I'm supposed to be all these other things. And if I'm a thinking person, I know it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, right? The church I grew up in, we weren't allowed to have facial hair. It's crazy. Didn't Jesus have facial hair? <laughs> yeah, but they pulled it out. What are you talking? I mean, those are the kind of answers you would get. You're not allowed to dance. Didn't David dance naked? Yeah, but you're not allowed to. It's a, you can't have any alcohol. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Kind of does, and don't smoke either. It's like, it's not in there. What? I don't get it. And so you would go to church, and what you would do is you would get that week's to-do list, which will get slapped on you and make you feel incredibly guilty because you failed at last week's to-do list. And you were told that this is what Jesus wants. And if you didn't grow up in the church, that's the preconceived idea. See, Jesus doesn't want you to be gay. He doesn't want you to be a Democrat. He doesn't want you to, and so you have to be these things and come follow me. And it sounds like this miserable life. Well, then you read the words of Jesus, and Jesus says things like this. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And everything we've been taught about him has nothing, that doesn't look easy, that doesn't look light, that looks cumbersome and burdensome, and it's not even logical. It's not appealing. I don't, this God wants to interact with your heart. I don't really want him to. I don't want, I don't want those things in my life. So who is Jesus and what is he? And what does it mean when he says, come after me, be connected to my heart? It's fascinating that quote comes out of Matthew chapter 11. Open your Bibles up there if you want. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 682 in those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible or a newer one, please just take one of those with you. Matthew chapter 11 Jesus is talking about this idea of following him, and that's what he says here in verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, the presentation of Jesus doesn't sound restful. When's the last time you, you got involved in the church and you thought of it as restful? When's the last time that you, you thought, man, I want to get closer to Jesus, and you thought of it as restful? We tend to think of it as one more thing that we have to do. I got to lose weight, I got to quit smoking, and I got to read my Bible, right? It doesn't sound restful or light or gentle, and if it's Captain American Jesus, I don't actually want to learn that. Why? What is Jesus actually saying? What's he actually inviting us to? I wrote about this in this book. Let me read this to you. In this context of this passage, this is how God interacted with me. Most of those that were listening to Jesus at the time were living under some pretty strict religious rules. If you were Jewish in the first century, you would have found it quite difficult to live a good religious life. Both the government and your religious training made it hard on you. 
the Roman government was in control of your land and the Jewish leaders required you to obey a ton of rules. And to make matters worse, all your obedience didn't bring you happiness or joy in life. Jesus contrasted what he was offering over these heavy rule-keeping requirements of the Pharisees. He set up his offer with a farming analogy. In the first century culture, farming was done with plows pulled by oxen or horses. Farmers would often hitch two animals together to plow the ground. They did this by joining the animals together in a yoke. The yoke was made of two wooden pieces shaped in an upside-down U and fastened side by side to a heavy crossbar. When this crossbar placed over the shoulders of the two oxen and their heads was thrust into the two U-shaped pieces, it formed a harness that linked them together as one. This allowed them to pull the wagon in unison as they worked as a close team. With this picture in mind, I began to process Jesus' offer to me. He could have said, come to me and I will harness you up to pull the wagon of my teachings, but he didn't. He could have said, come to me and I'll be your master and I'll chain you to me as a slave, but he didn't. The yoke wasn't there to keep me bound to his rules or to jerk me in line when I started to stray off the right path. No, Jesus said he wanted to be yoked with me. His invitation was to come to be yoked with me so that I can be connected, joined, bonded together in life with you. The yoke he offers looks less like a to-do list and more like a relationship, less like teamwork and more like oneness, less like going to school and more like a shared passion, less like discipline and more like a natural result, less like a strained pursuit and more like a gravitational pull. The bottom line is that he wants you and me in this close life-on-like connection so that we can get to know him. He wants us yoked with him. Why, as Jesus put it, is so that you can learn from me. Jesus is looking and saying, I'm not asking you to add all these things onto your life. In fact, actually, I give you freedom from these things. I give you the exact opposite of of how I'm often presented, and I want to do this with you. I'm not yoking you to me so that I can keep a closer eye on you. I'm not yoking you to me so that you don't become a Muslim. I'm not yoking you to me so that I can cause you to get your act together. I'm yoking with you so we can be one. We can walk in unison with each other. We can share heart, life, passion. And you can begin to learn from me. Learn what? Well, learn my heart learn my mind, learn what it means to embrace this abundant life that I want to give you. So you can be connected to me and strip away all the excess that's been dumped on you and know my heart and learn it and give me yours. What if the key to following Jesus isn't trying harder What if the key to following Jesus is receiving more? What if he does the work of altering our lives? What if he does the work of empowering us to be godly? What what if it's what he's doing in us, not what we're doing for him? And what if the key to it 
is loving him and knowing him and becoming one with him. My friend Dave said it this way. He said, in discipleship, we need to try harder not to try harder. The more that I make discipleship about what I'm doing for God, the less I am being a disciple of Jesus. I might embrace Christianity more strongly, see, but am I embracing and knowing the heart of God? It's fascinating what God says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It's page 553 in those Bibles in your chairs. Talking about what it means to follow him, the Apostle Peter says this on God's behalf. He says, his divine, Christ's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It's fascinating, isn't it? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. The godly life isn't something that I attain. It's not something that I work into. It's not degrees that I click off and now I know this and execute it perfectly and now I know this and execute it perfectly. The godly life is something that's given to me by God. The promises that enable me to participate in the divine nature are given to me by Christ. Well, how do I unlock those then so that I'm actually living the way that God would want me to live or I'm walking with him, or the Apostle Paul talks about being led by the Holy Spirit. How in the world does all that work? How do you open that up? Do you have to read more books? Do you have to memorize the Bible more? Do you sit in church more? No, you might do all of those things and they're right and proper and even like go to church, God says to do, and there's different reasons for that besides being religious. So how do you get to that? Well, Peter tells us as well, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Oh, good thing I grew up in church and studied the Bible my whole life. It's not working though, is it? Why? Because the word knowledge has to be read correctly here. In, the, in our Western minds, the word knowledge means information. I have more information. And we've actually created many systems like that. I'm going to take in information and take in information, take in information. And the thought was, if I have enough information, I'm not going to be able to help myself but to do what God says. Well, the problem is the Bible says even the demons have that information. They, they, know, they know God's word inside now. It's not helping them any. You have to look at that word knowledge through a Middle Eastern mindset the word knowledge in the Bible means intimacy. It's the same idea when the Bible uses the term that Adam knew his wife. He had sex with her, intercourse with her, was one with her. There's an intimacy there. My knowledge of him is not the information I picked up in Sunday school about Jesus. It's my intimate connection. It's actually yoking. I'm learning from God. He's given me everything I need for my divine, uh, divine power to, for godliness so I can participate in the divine nature. It's there, it's birthed into me because the old me is dead and a new me has been born again. It's in there. How do you lock it? Do you get your act together? No, how do you unlock it? You get to know the heart of the one who gave it to you. 
And as I know Christ's heart, I will get Christ's mind and he will renew my mind and he will transform my heart as we journey together through life. Sometimes that's presented in a culture, which is fine. Why do we do church like this and sing the songs that we sing and have the music? Oh, it's because we, we live in North America. It's no big deal. If we lived on the plains of Chad, Africa, we would do church very differently. Those are all preferences or cultural things. But the heart of Jesus is the same. And if I want to live a godly life and I want to participate in the eternal the key to it is learning, receiving, allowing God's power to have full course in me. The key to following Jesus is actually following Jesus. Not, not participating in Christianity or a religious system, that's different. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, a lot of it's benign. But the heart of Jesus is the key to being all that Christ would want, yoking to his heart and learning from him. I was talking to Pastor Tony about this, and uh, he had a great analogy, I thought. He said, it's kind of like what we do in marriage. You know, when, when Heidi and I got married a little over 20 years ago, when, when I married Heidi, I married Heidi because I fell in love with Heidi. I, her heart captivated me, this little ball of energy. She's always been crazy, like she still is. And so this little ball of energy that's full of joy and passion and a smile and compassion and patience and loves the Lord. And it drew me to her heart, right? And she was drawn to mine, which is good because I didn't really have a lot of other things to put on the table there. And so... Our hearts connected, we fell in love, and that's why we got married. Now, what happens over time, 20 years, six children, jobs, the mortgage, the yard, all that kind of stuff, all the junk of life comes in, and if we're not careful, we'll look at each other and say, well, I feel distant from your heart, so let's go and work on our marriage Instead of connecting with each other's hearts, we start working on this concept called marriage. So we read books on marriage and how to be married, and we go to marriage seminars, and we go to marriage retreats, and we can put a lot, a lot of energy into our marriage and put very little energy into each other. People do it all the time. That's why we'll say, well, we're divorcing. Well, did you? Yeah, we tried counseling. We read books. We went to seminar. We showed up at church. None of it worked. Why? Because I'm working on this other thing called marriage. I didn't marry because I was in love with the concept of marriage, right? I didn't look at Heidi and think, oh, she's got good teeth. She'll probably make good kids. I'd like to co-own property with her. That's not, that didn't attract me, right? I was attracted to Heidi, and this is what happens. We, we can take Jesus, because we fall in love with Jesus. We're a sinner, and Jesus rescued us, and we are an enemy of God, but Jesus laid his life down for us, and Jesus wants relationship with us, and he loves us, and he's passionate about us, and he enjoys us. He wakes up in the morning, he looks forward to being with us, and there were times that we used to do that, 
and we can take our love for Jesus, and when it goes to the natural relational flows that our relationship with Jesus is gonna go through, if we pull away from his heart and start working on this concept called Christianity, why go to church more? I do more Christian things. I went on a missions trip. I read a Christian book. I listened to Christian. And we can be Christianized and have no passion for God. You can be a really, really good Christian and not love Jesus at all. That is fascinating. Revelation chapter 2, flip to the right in your Bible, is about 10 pages or so. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking to one of the early churches, the church of Ephesus, and he talks to them about this very thing. Verse 2, chapter 2, Revelation, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, you have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. He's writing to this church and he says, guys, listen, church, church of Ephesus, Grace Church, you're, you're doing church awesome. You're, you're, you're serving the poor, you're helping the sick, you're loving each other. I know your deeds, you're doing great things. You're testing prophets, and, and, and if they're false, you're kicking them out. You have great doctrine, very sound doctrine, and very solid theology. Good job. You have held to the core of the Christian belief system that the Bible teaches us, and you've done that unapologetically. You have persevered under hardship. The culture is collapsing around you, but you're not becoming liberal. You're not watering down the gospel. You're, you're, you're holding the line and you're doing it in my name. You're doing it because it's right and it's true and you won't back off of that. You are doing church with excellence. But here's the problem. You don't love me. You don't love me. You've got all the all the trappings and you, you go and you do and you participate and you give and but you don't love me. And I don't want Christianity, I want disciples. I want you to love me. Do you remember when we fell in love? And if you don't, then maybe we never did. The reason that I don't want to sin against Heidi is not because I would break down the marriage. Now I got child support. And I lost my house. And the reason I don't want to sin against Heidi is because I love her. It's not lack of opportunity. I travel all over the world by myself all the time. I could get away with it. You'd never know, she'd never know. See, it's not fear. It's not that Heidi's gonna get me. It's not that Heidi's gonna nail me with a lightning bolt. It's I love her. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't wanna hurt her heart or violate our love for each other. That's what motivates me. It's not even because I don't think about 
being unfaithful to her sometimes. What causes us to be drawn to God? What, what alters behavior? What defines lifestyle? Why do I come to church? Why would I give money? Why do I serve the poor? I can do all of that and not love Jesus, but catch this. But if I love Jesus, I can't stop myself from doing all of that. And when you invert that, if you love me, you'll do what I command. Set aside the behavior and lock into my heart. Yoke with me. And I'll give you rest. Tired of spinning your wheels? Sick of the new to-do list? Sick of trying to make yourself motivated? I'll give you rest. Because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm not throwing stuff on you. I'm going through life with you. And when you learn my heart, all of a sudden, the things that you do are done with joy and passion and gladness. Because two people love each other. And that's what I actually want. I want you to love me with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And by the way, when you love me like that, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. What would happen if we stopped trying so hard? What if we tried harder not to try harder? What if we began to receive from God? What if we learned from his heart? What if we embraced the passion of our loving creator? Guys, this is the journey I want to take you on for the next few weeks, and I'm really excited to do this. I really think it's going to be life-changing. And so we're going to walk through this for a while. I'm going to take you on it. Pastor Tony's going to be back uh, a week or two, and uh, you're going to get to hear. He and I are doing this together, so he's going to come and talk with you, and I'm going to go out to Medina East and try to salvage their souls. Um, And uh, I, I think it's going to be a really fun journey to hear from those things. There's a couple of very tangible things that you can take away if you want, okay? So I wrote this book. Uh, This book is, it explores this on very, very deep levels that I cannot cover in 35 minutes on a weekend. So I don't make money off the book. It's just for you. So if this would help you, grab it. And I think if you read it through and get to engross in it a little bit more, you'll get these concepts even deeper. That's why we created it, to try to help you with it. There's also tools, there, there are booklets that you can get together with a few people. And they're not fill in the blank things, it's just more asking different questions to help you think through things in a different way. So there's very, very practical things like that that are meant to help you and they're available if you need them or want them. You may just wanna say today, I'm gonna make it for the next four weeks. Like we're gonna, despite if Ohio State's playing or the Browns are on, I'm, we're going to make it the church because this, this is me. And I, and I need to, I, I would like to talk this through and figure this out. So it's a, it's a evolving conversation. 
So you may just make a commitment that church is going to be number one on the to-do list on the weekends for the next few weeks. Today, I would encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer here as the band leads us. And ask God to begin to untangle the trappings that your love for him is stuck in. I don't know if you're like me. You say, I'm not opposed to God. I have no idea how to respond to him. All I know to do, I know to do this, this, and this is what the the pastor said, the the priest said. I I know, me too, me too. And so I don't have a new to-do list for you, but I do know that if you press deep into the heart of God, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit will help you identify those things and help you untangle them. And it's not something I can do for you, but it's something that God will do with you. And so praying and asking and taking the time to be still and letting that happen. And then guys, if you, you could have gone to church your whole life, but never interacted with the heart of God. And loving Jesus and accepting his heart for you is actually the spark of salvation. It's not saying a prayer and being religious. It's looking and saying, God, I want to want what you want. Yoke with me. I want to learn from you. I want to love you. And I'll be honest, I don't even know what that means yet. And God would look at you and say, I'll be gracious and I'll help you understand. Now come follow me. You're weary, you're burdened. Come on. I'll give you rest. I'll do this with you. So wherever you're at, Pray, think, talk to God, and ask him to help you reset your relationship with him.